The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Well, it looks like it's 7 o'clock, more or less. It looks like there's some people here. Ooh, this is very... I haven't lectured in here for years. We did 900 in here one year. I don't like it, except maybe they got the heat working this year. Years ago, the heat didn't work in here. It got kind of harsh in the winter. This looks terrific. I, 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 I'm sure we'll have to erase some of it to explain stuff, but this looks so much, uh, you know. Some, some people are just better at drawing on the blackboard. And, uh, but I'll erase it as needed. So, uh, what can I tell you? I'm there. Look at that. Uh, what was the, what was the, it, it doesn't include, uh, tomorrow's lecture on animal language and stuff. It does include the stuff on, uh, um, uh, adult human language from last time. Lecture 10 was language and acquisition. Well, 10 and 11 are both called language and, and, and acquisition or something like that. But anyway... Last time's lecture is there, uh, next time's lecture isn't. So there won't be a question about whether or not apes can talk to you, and there will be a question on whether you can talk to you. Probably. So the, isn't that, I thought it was chapter 9. What's the, the language chapter. So the language chapter has a, a large chunk on... Uh, on uh, regular adult language, I would certainly think that, that would be a good thing to know something about because it's the same material as was in the lecture. I wouldn't sweat the development stuff too much this time because it won't. The, the, the exam must be in a slightly different position because usually this isn't where the break is. But anyway, adult language, not kid language, not ape language. Yes. Can I go home now? <laughs> so as, as previously advertised, I will not stand up here and, and review the course. I will respond to pithy questions from uh, members of the audience. Um, in the absence of pithy questions, I will stand here for a short period of time staring blankly at you as you stare blankly at me, and then we'll all go home in a sort of faintly disappointed kind of way. So, what do you got there for me? You got you to yell in here. This is, the acoustics are miserable. Negative reinforcement and punishment. Reinforcement is always a good thing, even if it's negative reinforcement. That's the way to try to get this into your memory. I think if, if my memory serves correctly, I bungled this uh, in, in describing it at least once in class. But reinforcement is always a good thing. So if, 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 if something says negative reinforcement, there must be a good thing happening. So a negative reinforcement is something like... Um, you know, the baby stops crying. You know, if you're, if you're a 
baby minder, you'll do stuff to make that baby stop crying. The cessation of something nasty is, an, is, is uh, a negative reinforcer. Punishment is, is, is commonsensically what you think it is. Uh, if I whack you every time you use whatever that is, a purple pen, you'll stop using a purple pen because you're not stupid. Yeah, um, can you talk about, like, center and surround and kind of visual perception, how, they, how that works? Uh, sentence, uh, I, I like the first part of that question. That sounded precise enough to... The, the, a curved piece of chalk. Uh, all right, so when objects separate energy... All right, so we're going to get rid of the spring. What? Great eraser. Great eraser. Oh, boy. Well, what, what, it'll, it'll, it'll have to do. So, center surround refers to receptive field organization. Uh, and it's receptive field organization, in, I'm going to leave that because it's pretty. Um, I, 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 so well, one, one, place, one place to see it actually is in the skin. If you go and find a, a chunk of, here's the brain, here's somatosensory cortex here. If you go and grab one little cell there, what you might discover is that it's got a receptive field, let's say on the arm, um, such that if you, if you touch the arm here, that cell gets active. Um, but characteristically, there will also be a region around that spot where if you touch around it, that cell will be inhibited. So that's center surround organization on, on the, uh, the skin. Do I have all sorts of pretty colored chalk here to play with? Well, no, I have a color. So, you know, plus in the center, minus in, in, in the surround. And if you, if you poke around out here, it doesn't care at all. So, and, and, and um, that's a good way to, to, to localize stimulation on the skin. Um, in the visual system, you've got the same sort of thing. So now, this can be the retina with lots and lots of photoreceptors paving its surface. If you find some cell in the, um, uh, well, I suppose a nice place to look for center surround cells would be the, the output cells of the retina, the ganglion cells of the retina, you might find that that output cell, so here's a cell hooked up to the retina and going off to the brain somewhere, and that would be a ganglion cell. And it's hooked up in such a way that if you stimulate, let's say, any of these photoreceptors, this cell would become more active. But if you stimulate any of the ones immediately surrounding it, it would become less active. These, these photoreceptors would have an inhibitory impact on this cell. So it's got you know, a center that's excitatory and a surround 
that's inhibitory. So that means if you have light that just fills that center region, that's going to be the optimal stimulus for this, for this cell. It's going to be really happy to see a little spot. And that can be the basis for... Um, you know, a set of things like this then become the basis for building more elaborate features later on um, in the central nervous system. So if you had, um, if you go up into the brain, so now we'll go to visual cortex back here at the back of the brain, right? That's usual picture. So if you go back here, you'd find cells that um, are organized again in a sort of a center surround way but now they'd want a uh, the, the, it's elongated so their best stimulus would be a bar that just has this particular orientation and lies in this particular in one particular part of space and you could imagine building more and more elaborate things out of um, you know go from little photo detectors to spots to lines and so on. It's a little simplistic, it turns out, to think that you're just building up what you're seeing pixel by pixel. Um, but that's the sort of thing that these receptive fields are doing for you. Yeah? So you're saying it starts uh, very basic when you're at the retina and as you like, kind of move up towards the brain, the basic stimulus you become... Right, if you look in the retina, you look in the retina of uh, of a... Uh, uh, human or a monkey, you find cells that are interested in spots. Um, and also, they also have a certain amount of interest in color. And that's about it. Um, if you, if they don't care about motion, they don't care about orientation, none of that stuff. Go up here into the brain, they start to care about um, orientation and motion and uh, more sensitivity to size and their color processing gets fancier. And then you may recall that there are two broad paths coming out of visual cortex. A where path heading up into the parietal lobe and for present purposes the more important one would be the what path heading down into the temporal lobe where you get fancier and fancier um, cells, cell, cells with preferences for more and more elaborate stimuli. So we've known for 30 years that there are cells down here in a monkey's brain that like things like monkey hands and monkey faces and stuff like that. What we now know from fMRI studies in, in alert, awake humans is that there are little chunks of brain down in this pathway that are specialized for faces in humans. There are little chunks of brain down here that seem to be specialized for places. They like to see scenes. They don't care particularly about faces. They don't care about isolated objects, but they would love a view of a room like this. Um, so, spots more elaborate features heading on into ever more uh, complicated stuff. Does that help? I was like, yep. uh, all right, well, we'll let you do follow-up here. How do the spots Oh, how do, how do you build yourself a, a, uh, a motion detector? Um, the simplest way to do it, and this, this is, uh, it, almost exactly this is done in some lower organisms, and then variations on it are what's being done in, in, uh, uh, in your brain somewhere. So imagine you have two little photodetectors, 
right? And, and let's have them both be connected to one cell in an excitatory... Um, uh, let's see, how do I want to do this? No, we'll have it be... One, one of these guys will be excitatory. So this guy can be excitatory, and this guy can be inhibitory. So if you... Just, just a story like this, you know, shine light on both of them, nothing much happens. But what we'll do is we'll put a little um, uh, a, a time delay on here, but just on one, on one line. So we'll build a little time delay in. So that way, if you're coming from this direction, you hit this positive one, a positive signal gets here, this cell gets excited and says, I saw something. But if stuff comes from this direction, you hit this guy, it sets up some inhibition here, you hit this guy, nothing gets through because the cell's been inhibited recently, and it doesn't see the motion. So this would be the minimal little detector that would say, I got motion going this way and no motion, and, and, you know, it, it, it likes motion going that way and not motion going the other way. Uh, it's, it, it's in the brain, it's in your brain. If you were a rabbit, it would be, or a frog, um, it would be in your retina. But in, in, in mammals like, uh, in, in, in primates, it's up in the brain. There's not much motion preference. Cells in the retina of, of humans, near as we can tell, and certainly of monkeys, don't care about motion. Um, so you don't, want, you don't want me to give an hour-long lecture about what are known as Reichart detectors, because it's very cool, but, but, but it's... it's not, not, not going to be, not going to be a good use of your time here. Um, but the basic little circuit is kind of, is might be, might be worth your time. There was a hand. Oh, there's the hand. Yes. It was ganglion. It was since you raised. So, so uh, well, uh, quick little. Retina tour, um, right? So let's have some cone photoreceptors here. Cone photoreceptors. This would be, say, in the fovea, would be connected to bipolar cells. Bipolar cells, in turn, would be connected to ganglion cells going out to the out to the brain so the through route would be photoreceptors here cones bipolar ganglion and then um, there are two layers of lateral connections up here you'd have horizontal cells they at least have the advantage of a name that makes some sense um, and down here you have a second set of lateral interactions of these so-called amacrine cells. Um, and and this means, you know, how, you, how are you going to build a, a, a center and a surround? Well, you're going to have, you know, the, the, you're going to have these lateral connections building the center and surround. Otherwise you just have, you know, pixel to cell to output cell. It's these connections that give you, among other things, the sort of center surround kind of 
organization. Yes. What's the difference? Yeah. Is that like I asked what the difference was? I'm, sorry? I'm just wondering. You looked like you were quoting to me from a prior exam, and oh, I. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, so, so the, the, I, I would, for present purpose, I mean, you can sit around and argue about subtle distinctions there, but really, the the distinction that you want to make. All right, we'll, we'll leave these cute little vectors because they're pretty too. Um, all the rest of this has to go. Whoop. Um, so you've got explicit versus implicit uh, knowledge and um, explicit is the stuff explicit is the stuff that you're going to need on Thursday right that, that, it, it's, it's the stuff that you the user of the brain can go and somehow reach into your brain ask yourself for and get out that's explicit memory Implicit memory are, uh, is, uh, is a grab bag term for a bunch of other stuff that's clearly in there, but that you don't have, well, you don't have particularly explicit um, access to. So, um, uh, let's see, under that, now I'm not, I'm forgetting all the various terms that you, what, 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 what were the other terms on there? We'll categorize them. Oh, oh hmm, procedural. No, uh, d- 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 declarative. Itive, declarative sounds good. Um, or so motor memories. How to ride a bike. How to say a word. Um, are often listed under implicit. Procedural, yeah, people fight about this sort of thing, but procedural versus declarative is, 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 is how you do it and sort of how you talk about it, um, but is used by some people as a stand-in for de- uh, ex- explicit versus implicit. The, the, the really important distinction, well, and, and another, version, another way to break this apart is this is the stuff that's vi- the, for which the hippocampus is vitally important at the encoding stage. You don't get explicit memories, new explicit memories without a hippocampus. You do get a range of implicit memories without a hippocampus. You learn to see that something uh, looks familiar. Um, you can learn um, new associations, um, you know, the cl- classical and operant conditioning. So let's, let's call this association learning are all things that might be under the general rubric of, of implicit learning. So if you take HM, the guy with the hippocampal lesion, and 
um, every time, uh, you know, I don't know, every time you show them a bunny, you do the little, uh, the, 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 the baby Albert, baby Albert? Baby Albert experiment, every time you show them a bunny, you play a loud, unpleasant noise, um, H.M. would learn um, that there's something he doesn't like about seeing bunnies. He wouldn't remember that you'd run... So that would be an implicit association that he had learned, classically conditioned association. Um, He would not have explicit memory of having learned it. Does that help? Are Are we getting... Okay. Almost. The, the major difference is that I would be likely to use the explicit, implicit language, and I will st- tend to stay away from the declarative procedural language because I think it's hard to define. I mean, I, as the guy who's writing the test, this is a hint that if you've got a good, if you've got a good handle on the, the distinction that I'm making between explicit and implicit, you're, 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 you'll, you'll, you'll be fine there. And I can't quite say... We already asked one. You already got one. However, nobody else wants to ask anything, so go ahead. Um, can you talk about the difference between fixed and variable ratio interval? Okay, so uh, the schedules of reinforcement in, in uh, Skinnerian pigeon land. A, uh, so ratio schedules refer to how many of whatever behavior the animal needs to, to produce in order to get um, rewarded. So let's talk about pigeons pecking at a key. Um, a fixed ratio 10 schedule of reinforcement would mean the pigeons got to peck 10 times, exactly 10 times, and after the 10th peck, the pigeon's going to get whatever it is that the pigeon wants, you know, whatever's on offer in, in, this, uh, in this particular cage. Um, a variable ratio schedule would be one where after uh, an average of 10 pecks, the beastie gets reinforced. Sometimes it's 9, sometimes it's 12. On average, the bird's going to need to peck 10 times. So that's ratio. Interval refers to time. A fixed interval schedule would be the bird gets fed for the first behavior, for the first peck, after a minute. Doesn't matter what else he did during that period of time, but after a minute, if he pecks, he gets, a, he gets some bird seed. And variable interval would be, on average, he's got to wait a minute. Might be 50 seconds, might be 70 seconds, but on average, he's got to wait, um, wait a minute. Um, so what you, the sorts of things that you want to know are uh, what, what produces um, the most uh, robust kinds of behavior, most robust, hard to extinguish, hard to get rid of behavior, and uh, variable ratio schedules are good uh, for that. The higher, uh, the higher a ratio that you can establish... Right, you can't. You know, in principle, if you could get the bird to work for a, you know, variable ratio one million uh, schedule, that bird's going to work himself to the, into the ground. But the bird's never going to learn that. But a variable ratio ten schedule will produce more behavior and be more resistant to extinction than, say, a, uh, a fixed ratio of one, 
Why is that? That's, uh, I think I used the example in class of the distinction between a slot machine and a Coke machine. Coke machine better be a fixed uh, ratio one reinforcer. You put in your money, out comes the can. You put in your money, nothing comes out, you don't put in any more money. A slot machine is a variable ratio reinforcer um, and with a long, uh, with, with, with a, a high schedule on it. And so you put in your money, you don't get anything out and Las Vegas is busy hoping you'll just keep putting in your money and getting reinforced on, on, a, on a slow scale. And, and that will reinforce much more slow, uh, sorry, will extinguish much more slowly. Yep. you think that one, that one text and then all the food spills out would make a pigeon eat, I mean, do it again and again more quickly than after? No, if you peck once and all the, all, all, all the, all the quarters fall out of the, uh, uh, out of the machine, you got all the money you need, at least for now, and you quit. It, it's, if you are, um, but it, it's, you know, it, this, this, is, this is why the behaviorist project was interesting in child rearing land. You can sit around and ask yourself, if you're a little kid, what's going to make you work harder? If mommy gives you a cookie every time you do anything, how much work are you going to do? Not that much. How many cookies can you eat anyway? But if mom starts by giving you cookies for all sorts of stuff and then starts to say, you got to, you know, do more stuff and more stuff and now you got to, I'm not going to give you cookies unless you go to MIT. <laughs> then you work like a lunatic. <laughs> you stay up all night. Well, see, if your mother had been giving you cookies all the time, you wouldn't be here. Yes? Oh, um, is is there is is it no? Certainly not the same amount of work per cookie. No. Oh, oh you mean, you're just talking about the difference between fixed ratio and variable ratio. Yes, that that, that that's yes, that would be the same amount on average. And the uncertainty. The, the uncertainty seems to produce both higher rates of performance um, and more resistance to... Look, if you, if you're a, if, if you had conscious access to this um, and, and, and you're, you're on a fixed ratio 10 schedule and you emit 10 pecks, peck, 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 didn't get anything. You stop. But if you're on a variable ratio, you... Oh, maybe it's, this is an 11... Oh man, maybe it's 12. Maybe it's exponentially distributed. Maybe it's, you know, this, this one's coming out 150 pecs later. So anyway, so... Oh, sharper. Well, in, in, in both cases, you're going to need, you need to shape the behavior, right? If you simply put a bird in a cage and, and say, okay, 10 pecks before you get any bird food, you're not going to get much behavior out of the bird. You've got to start with, you know, feeding them the cookie every time and then slowly work them back to every 10. Um, 
the, the, the one thing that, that, that I, I think I can safely say is that the variable ratio, and you can sit around and wonder about why this exactly is, but variable ratios produce higher um, rates of emitting behavior than fixed. For, you know, there, there's, there's buckets of long, boring theoretical books on, on distinctions like that. But, uh, um, and and the, if you go on to the interval schedules, what the bird does or the, or the rat does is show evidence of being able to time. Right? What they'll do, particularly for the fixed uh, interval ones. For a fixed interval one, um, right after he gets reinforced, the pigeon simply doesn't do anything because he knows those pecks are valueless. Um, and then he starts to think, have I waited long enough and starts to peck and the rate of pecking will go up, 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 until you reinforce it and then it'll drop. So you get this very scallopy rate of behavior. Whoop, boom, whoop, boom, whoop. That's, that's how you know you're on a, you've got a pigeon who's on a, on a interval schedule. There was a hand out. Oh, there's a hand. Uh, can you talk about contingency and contingency? Can I, who? Contingency. Was that contingency and, 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 and contiguity, I bet, was the other. Yeah, oh, okay, so contingent, so the, the important punchline there is that it's contingency that counts and not contiguity in association learning. What the animal is learning is what predicts what. Um, so if you just, so if you go to, say, say Pavlov's dog, right? If there's bells ringing randomly, and food showing up randomly, even though the bell and the food may be contiguous to each other in time. They may show up a lot, um, you know, at, at more or less the same time. The animal never learns anything. Um, what they learn is if um, the bell shows up reliably before the food and does not show up reliably before not food. It doesn't have to, so if it's perfect, perfect contingency is bell food, bell food, bell food every time. So that would be 100% contingency. If you have 50% of the time after the bell rings, food shows up, the animal will learn that association too. It'll learn it more slowly and it will learn, it will produce less saliva in this particular example. But they'll still learn it. The, the amount of learning is related to the, uh, to the uh, contingency and, and not the contiguity. Um, so, I can make all sorts of silly examples, but does that, does that sufficiently define those? Contiguity is just, just uh, proximity in, in, in time or space, right? So, so um, you know, there are you know, lights on. Every, every time you have ever, um, you know, flunked a test, the lights have been on. Yeah, so? <laughs> yeah. That's not interesting, even though light and, and, and bad outcome, or, you know, or bad, you know, bad tests, you know, those, those were contiguous events. Um, you don't learn anything about that. If every time um, I turned on a red light, you proceeded to you know, lose 10 points on the exam, eventually you would come 
even if you hadn't particularly specifically noticed this, eventually you would come to have a queasy feeling about red lights because there'd now be a contingent rela- I don't know how I've done this contingent relationship but you know, it's red light syndrome or something, but you know, now there'd be a relationship between red light and bad things happening and you would learn that Oop, there's a hand Oh, Lord, I could explain feature integration theory for the next, you know, 12 years. Um, cause, uh, but I won't. Um, so the, the basic idea of... Uh, the, the, the reason I could explain it for 12 years is because you know, my major contribution to the literature is a follow-on to Anne Treisman's feature integration theory. But the basic core idea of feature integration theory is that... Where'd my visual system go? Early in the visual system that you um, have a bunch of simple features that are extracted from the visual image. They would be things like the stuff we were talking about. Motion, size, orientation, color, uh, and a a bunch of other ones. Um, And, uh, Anne noted with interest, Treisman noted with interest, that there seemed to be specific chunks of the brain that were particularly interested in, say, motion. You know, and now you can see this in fMRI. It's sort of hereish on this picture. There's a little chunk of brain that loves motion. There's another chunk of brain that loves color and stuff like that. But when you look at the world, you don't see that. You don't see, you know, colors and motions and orientations. You see objects that have associated color, orientation, motion, whatever. How do you integrate those features? And Treisman proposed that uh, a critical role for selective attention, that you couldn't do this without putting attention onto, with, without selecting an object with, uh, with, with your attentional processes, um, that she originally thought actually that, that somehow the world was a sort of a soup of features beforehand, that, they, that they, they were completely just kind of swimming around and then you finally got your attention on something and bound them together. Um, but what seems to be the case, certainly, is that you can't recognize an object. You can't figure out that this orientation goes with this color, goes with this motion, and so on, until you attend to that object. And with luck, you all remember that I did a bunch of cool demos in one of those lectures illustrating the sorts of problems you have um, keeping track of stuff outside of, the, uh, outside of attention. Oh, and since we met on this subject, um, Dan Simons, whose name I think I mentioned in class, um, he's the guy... I, I, I talked about the experiment at, uh, where you're standing on a street in, in, in Ithaca and somebody walks by. You're giving directions to somebody and these two guys walk through with a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's Dan Simons and he also did the famous experiment with where you don't notice a guy in a gorilla suit and stuff. Anyway, he won an Ig Nobel Prize. You know about the Ig Nobel Prizes? Yeah, yeah, well, he won one. That was good. It's better to win a regular old Nobel Prize. But if you're not going to win one of those, an Ig Nobel is at least kind of fun. Um, so, yes? Uh, do I need to? Uh, well, no, I don't particularly, but you might. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, yeah. The, 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 uh, the, this, this, this is the, the, 
unendingly impossible question to answer, which is like, which bits do I actually need to know of all that blankety-blank neuroanatomy, right? Because the, 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 the short answer is you need to know the important stuff. Right? I don't, you don't need to know every little detail, you just need to know the important stuff. The problem is that I get to define what the important stuff is, and anyway. Um, so, very useful to know. Uh, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to not know where the like four main uh, uh, lobes of the brain, of, of, the, 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 of the cortex were, right? Frontal lobe, parietal lobe up there. This is a big fold, the central sulcus, big fold in the middle. Occipital lobe at the back, temporal lobe down here. I'd kind of want to know that visual cortex was here. You know, somatosensory cortex up here on one side of the central sulcus, motor cortex on the other side. Um, I'd want to know bits and pieces of the neuron. Um, and then I wouldn't go off and stay up all night worrying too much about it because the worst thing that's going to happen is that it's going to turn out that I think that it's vitally important that you know where the hoozy-foozy nucleus is. And you thought that was you know, just so much trivia. Well, there's five points shot. You know, that's sad, but it's not going to be the worst disaster. If you can memorize every term in the book, great. If you lose a few of them, it won't be a huge disaster. Yeah, James? What's the difference between the somatosensory cortex and the motor cortex? The somatosensory cortex is a sensory cortex. It's, it's um, they're responding. Um, uh, it, if I poke you, um, some chunk of somatosensory cortex lights up, corresponding with the chunk of skin that I have poked. Um, if you then haul off and punch me, that's because some chunk of motor cortex has activated the relevant muscles that says, you know, arm, like that. So you know, motor is, is, is there for producing voluntary motor output, and this is for receiving uh, sensory input. That, that's, that's the basic like distinction. Yeah, they're, 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 they're close neighbors to each other, probably not accidentally. Um, but, but uh, and there's this nice map of um, the skin surface basically laid out over the somatosensory cortex and of the body, particularly in you know, the musculature of the body laid out across motor cortex. And they, they, they have a rough correspondence with feet up here in both cases and head down here, as I recall. But... Uh, um, but basically, the important thing is sens you know, sensory input, motor output. That, that, that would be the, the tidbit to remember there. Yeah? Can you explain this? No. I mean, I could, but I, 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 um, I failed to talk about it in, um, in mainstream at all, right? Did I talk about signal detection theory in mainstream? No, I, and I don't think I talked about it significantly in, in concourse either. Um, it's a fascinating topic. It's an endlessly complicated topic. Um, but because I didn't say enough about it, it, it it's, it's in the book, in, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, you get another benefit from having uh, shown up to the review session. Because I didn't get around to lecturing about it, and because I know it, it confuses people, it ain't on the midterm. Maybe it'll be on the final, just because I know it confuses people. But it's not on the midterm. Um, good. Ah, he wasn't listening. Should we tell him? Yeah, all right. Signal detection theory. 
You should, you do, you want to know about it. If you're a course six major, you're probably going to take some course on it eventually and stuff. But it, w- wonderful stuff, but I, I, I don't want to try giving a full blast lecture on it. However, had I remembered that it was in the book, I would have answered that. But never mind, too late. Yes? Uh, yeah, Weber. Weber's law, since he's a good German guy. Uh, Weber's law is, is basically the idea that um, comparisons in sensory systems and actually broadly are made on, in terms of ratios and not in terms of absolute value. So if I can tell the difference... I'm going to make these numbers up. These are not the real numbers. But if I can tell the difference between one pound and one pound one ounce... Um, well, that's a lot. Let, let's do it in metric land. It's easier. Uh, one kilogram and 1.1 kilograms, right? Let's suppose I can tell the difference between those two weights. And if it's less than that, I can't tell. If I have 10 kilograms, um, I would need 11 kilograms to tell the difference, not 10.1, right? So it, 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 it's, it's the ratio that's important, not the absolute value. That's... Um, uh, that's Weber's law. And the Weber fraction, if the book talks about Weber fractions, the Weber fraction is, well, in, in, in the example I just gave, the Weber fraction would be you know, 1 over 10. 1 tenth would be the difference that you need in order to be able to tell the difference. And it would differ for different, you know, all sorts of different discriminations would, would, would produce um, uh, and now, no, you don't need to know the particular fraction. If is there a table of fraction in Gleitman? Lovely. <laughs> you, can, you can memorize it. It's wonderful for you. Um, no, no, you want to... It's, again, one of these things where um, if it turns out that I think some cool detail like that is really neat and I ask about it, you're not going to flunk the exam on that. Um, but no, I wouldn't go me- me- memorizing the Weber fraction. But it, now, if you... Um, the the, the uh, Fechner's law um, basically says that um, uh, that sensation is uh, sensation is, is log stimulus, log energy in some fashion. So the brightness of a light, and this, this gives you ratio laws, right? The brightness of a light doesn't um, go up. If you, double the bright, if you double the number of photons hitting you, you don't double the apparent brightness. Um, the, the, the apparent brightness goes up with the log of the number of photons that are hitting you. Or the, um, uh, in fact, did, now does the book do Stephen's Law too? I forget. So Weber's law is almost right, but it's not quite right. The real, the, the story actually seems to be a little closer to. You, you, you got, got the basic idea of Fechner's law here. So Weber's law is ratio. Fechner's law is the, is, is the extension of that to saying that that, that stimulus, uh, that, that sensation is the is, goes goes up with log energy. What what really happens is um, uh, sensation goes up with. Energy, energy to some power. It's a, it's a power law rather than a strictly logarithmic law. They're very close for... Uh, the, the, the predictions of those two are very close for many things. Um, but the interesting thing about having it be a power law is that if you do something like light, 
the exponent is around 0.33 or something. Gives you this compressive function. But if it's a power law, uh, that gives you the possibility of a linear relationship if the exponent is 1, and an accelerating relationship if the exponent is greater than 1. So, can any, any, anybody think of a sensory domain where the, where the uh, exponent ought to be about 1? How about length? You know, if you, if you have a 6-inch hunk of wood and a 12-inch hunk of wood, it would be really lame if the apparent length of, a, of, of, of an object over short distances particularly went up with log length. You know, things would look really weird. And that doesn't happen. Um, and then there's the, 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 the entertaining cases of things where the sensation rises much more rapidly than the... Uh, than the, than the energy of the stimulus. Where do you think you get these accelerating functions? Pain. Pain, yeah. Great experiments. <laughs> they hurt to think about. So the exponent for electric shock to the teeth turns out to be about 3.5. Um, just to say, if you, you know, a ten, tenfold increase in... Uh, um, in, in, in voltage gives you, what is that, a 50,000 times increase in perceived pain? It's great stuff. Um, so, yeah. Watch, watch what experiment you sign up for. Oh, that reminds me to say, I know you're in the midst of studying for this midterm, but my lab begged me to say, we really, really, really need subjects, and we're not doing pain studies. Um, we'll, you know, pay you 10 bucks to... to uh, to work out further details of Anne Treisman's feature integration theory, who knows, you might get an extra five points on the exam from just the experience, not because we'll give you extra credit. But anyway, if you want to be a, if you be a, uh, a subject, uh, you know, send us email. We'd love to have you. Now, with that advertisement done, yes... Sure, uh, rods are, so difference between rods and cones. Rods are, are working in dim illumination. Um, they are concentrated if, 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 let's make, well, I better not make that the fovea. If this is the fovea, the rods are concentrated away from the fovea. They are actually absent in the central fovea altogether. And there's only one type of rod photoreceptor in terms of, they're photopigments, so there's only one rod photopigment with the result that you cannot see um, wavelength differences, so you can't do color with just the rod. So if you go outside um, tonight when we're done here and you're, and, and, and you're in dim illumination, the world will seem to be achromatic, not because something has changed about the physics of the world, but because you're looking at it with a... Uh, Single, <clears throat> a single photopigment. That's the so-called problem of univariance, by the way. Cones operate in brighter light. There are three different uh, types of them uh, in terms of their photopigments. One more sensitive to long, one to medium, and one to shorter wavelengths. That gives you the possibility of color vision. And they are most densely concentrated at the fovea, um, which is why you have, an, in, in daylight vision, um, you know, your best acuity is when you foveate an item, when you point your fovea at it. Um, 
closest packing of photoreceptors is here, but they're cone photoreceptors. Um, if you are a colorblind male, you are, or, or a color deficient male, that's because rather than having three photopigments, you either have typically two photopigments or um, three photopigments, but two of them are so similar that they don't do any work for you, any differential color vision type work. Um, it's very, very rare to be completely colorblind. Uh, that would require that you only have one functional photopigment. Um, those people are very rare. But 8% of the male population, it's a sex-linked trait, 8% of the male population has um, some color deficiency. It's only half of 1% of the female population. And in fact, there are females, maybe even those, some sitting amongst us tonight, who actually have four photopigments. Um, which turns out to make almost no difference at all. Um, because it turns out that while you've got four photopigments, um, the, the rest of the wiring that exploits this um, is built for a nervous system that comes with three photopigments and you lose most of the information. There are very subtle differences, you know, very subtle differences between what a, a quadrachromatic woman and a trichromatic woman um, will uh, say about color. Um, but if, if you want to think that your sophisticated color sense is because you actually have four photopigments, first of all, you are a woman um, and... Uh, I, I think, I think, uh, well, you know, there's probably some guy out there somewhere, but, but basically you'd better be a woman um, and, and, you know, more power to you. Yes? Uh, can, you can you lose them? Well, you'd have to be extremely clumsy. <laughs> um, can, I, can you lose your photoreceptors? Sure, there are all sorts of things you can do to lose your photoreceptors, um, but they're... Um, I mean, the, the, the things you can actively do if you're so inclined are to do what your mother said not to do and stare at the sun for a while, um, which will actually can destroy photoreceptors. But there's, uh, th there are a number of disorders, mostly genetic disorders rather than acquired disorders, that, that um, munch up photoreceptors uh, often in young adulthood and, and lead to progressive blindness. Um, but mo the, basically the, the, the answer is, nah, you're fine. If, you don't, if, if nothing traumatically bad happens to your eye and you don't happen to be a carrier for one of these diseases, um, your photoreceptors are, are there. They'll stay there. Um, you won't get new ones. The, uh, the, the, you get new um, olfactory, uh, uh, sorry, not olfactory receptors. You get new taste receptors. Um, because nature knew that you were too dumb to wait for the pizza to get cool. Right? You're, if you did the th same thing to your eyeballs that you do to your tongue, you'd have to be able to regenerate those receptors too. Right? You're always doing stupid things to your tongue. Um, and so those receptors do regenerate. Um, uh, olfactory receptors turn over, but if you destroy them, they don't regenerate. Um, auditory hair cells, the receptors in the ear, very active game is to try to um, 
figure out, somebody I think over at Mass Ioneer now thinks they have a way to regenerate hair cells because they don't regenerate if you lose them. The way, oh, the way to re-lose, photoreceptors, they're kind of hard to lose. Receptors in the ear, that you can lose. The way to lose that is crank those speakers. Get those speakers up really loud because the music sounds really good if it hurts, right? <laughs> and if it hurts, if, if you've ever had the experience, the, uh, if, if you've ever played your music really loud and then you hear a very pure, a single, very pure tone, that's a hair cell in your inner ear saying goodbye <laughs> and I'm not coming back. If you hear that a lot, you do, that's not good. You don't. You want to turn turn the speaker down. It used to be that the green line on the uh, the T was the place to hear that. They, they, back back when I first came to town, they had these cars that you you, you, have, you know the the big turn from Boylston into Park Street Station. About a, it's a sort of a right angle turn. The cars going through there would produce this immensely loud, high pitched scream. And that was the one time where I heard the beautiful tone of a hair cell dying. And ever after that, I would go through, you know, Boylston Street like this. You know, I don't care that everybody else on the train thinks I look like a doofus. Because I'm going to have my hair cells when I'm, you know, 70. And they're going to, anyway, they got new trains and it doesn't sound as bad anymore. Is that a hand? Do you want me to stop digressing and talk about something meaningful here? What about drinking ethanol? That's not a good idea either. <laughs> the, um, the, 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 there are all sorts of things that are neurotoxic um, in the world and, 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 and sufficient quantities of... of uh, uh, so we, we, ethanol is what's in regular alcohol, right? It's, it's ethyl alcohol that's... <laughs> there's an expert out there somewhere. Ethyl alcohol is the stuff that's really bad for you. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a potent neurotoxin. Um, yeah, you know, they're, they're, you know, you can. You want to poison yourself? There are ways ways to do it, and a lot of poisons have their their primary effect on on nervous tissues of various sorts, including receptors. And actually, uh, with a problem with antibiotics, there's a, a whole set of antibiotics um, that had the unfortunate effect of of killing hair cells. Um, and so, you know, it cured you of the infection that was going to kill you, and but you were deaf. Um, and uh, obviously they don't give those a lot at this point, but that was a, a, a complication of, of a variety. Is it, is, which antibiotics is it? I can't remember. But, yep. Well, 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 yeah, you've already asked one. You haven't, though. Anterograde or anterograde amnesia and retrograde amnesia. Um, all right, so I take this poor young woman and I hit her over the head. Right? If she cannot remember what happened before that hit, which she probably wouldn't be able to, um, that's a retrograde amnesia from before the point of injury. Antrograde is from after the point of injury. So typically, if you if, if, uh, the, the hitting example um, is, uh, is, is, a, is a good one, typically if somebody gets knocked unconscious, they will not remember um, whatever it is that knocked them unconscious. I mean, they may know what, what it, you know, they, they won't remember the point of impact or whatever that knocked them unconscious because that memory got lost in a retrograde amnesia. 
Um, and there may be some period of time after they regained consciousness where they have no memory subsequently because um, basically probably because the hippocampus wasn't working properly and was failing to lay down new explicit memories during that, that period of time. Um, so that's, that's the distinction. That's the distinction. No, that wasn't it, huh? Retrograde before the injury, anterograde after, right? Anterograde or anterograde. I think I've seen it spelled both ways and pronounced both ways. All right, how about way over there? Oh, it, um, if you have a traumatic brain injury of some sort, you know, it, it, it's, it's like other injuries. Stuff swells, it's not working all that well, and, and over time, um, as it heals itself, um, if you haven't actually destroyed tissue, um, you regain access to whatever it was that you were no longer, you, you didn't have access to. Um, exactly how that works, I mean, apart from saying things like the swelling goes down, I know I can't give you a better account of, of, of the, you know, the, the sort of molecular level details. I'm not actually sure anybody knows exactly what it means that you, you, you recover it. And, and, and people... Um, you know, that recovery period can take a long, long time. So after a stroke, um, it, it, it sort of looks, I, I, I take it, well, my understanding is that, that it looks sort of exponential. If you have a stroke or some sort of brain damage, you get most of what you're going to get pretty quickly. And then you get slow sort of recovery. Um, that's not, it's not a nice fixed function, the sort of thing that, that uh, makes doctors humble, or ought to, is, you know, so-and-so said, you know, doctor so-and-so says, you know, I'm really sorry, but this patient is simply never going to recover function. And, 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 you know, 90 times out of 100, the doctor's probably right. But the 100th time when, when this person comes out of a coma and, and talks to you again or whatever, um, you know, that's, that's what makes, makes doctors humble. It can be. I mean, oh, do well. Any specific images? Um, so, how well is memory localized? How, how well are specific memories localized in the brain? Um, memories, almost any reasonably complex memory is distributed fairly widely. I mean, not. It was once upon a time thought that the whole brain was sort of a uniform mush and it was just sort of distributed in a giant net. That doesn't seem to be true. But um, only very, very precise, carefully trained memories in animals, to my knowledge, have ever been sort of localized down to a sort of a cellular kind of a level. But you can, even in humans, you can get lesions, brain damage, in quite specific areas that produce very specific so-called agnosias. Right, agnosia, failure to know. Um, well, we'll put an agnosia in the frontal. Now, I better not put it in the brain because somebody's going to think it's a piece of brain. That's going to be bad. And then they're going to blame me when they get it wrong. So we'll just erase something here. 
Um, so agnosias are our failures to know something, um, and they can be quite specific. Uh, you can have patients who now fail to name animals. They're otherwise reasonably intact, but they have a specific deficit in naming animals. If you have a lesion, do I still have my little face area here? If you have a specific lesion in the face area, you end up with a um, patient with a so-called prosopagnosia. Well, I'll just write the whole word. Same agnosia on the end here. Where you have a specific problem recognizing faces. So you can have um, you, you, you can have specific losses due to spe- uh, of, of what boils down to memory with specific lesions. But if you ask, "Where's my memory of MIT?" it will turn out not to be um, localized here. It's spread out all over the place because your memory of MIT is this very multifaceted thing that has you know it's got visual components, auditory components, emotional components, you know. F- taste components um, and so on and, and that will be quite widely distributed even if it feels kind of unified when you ask about it yeah okay what's the, what's the main function of the hippocampus uh, the main function of the hippocampus appears to be ena- uh, the enabling the consolidation of short term fragile memories into long term explicit memories that um, that's this, this beautiful draw. Oh, I've erased half of it. Not these guys, not these implicit memories. It's not, not critical for that, but for explicit memories. Um, no, uh, no hippocampus, no new explicit memories. It is not the place where the memories are stored. So if, if I go in and, and, and remove James's uh, hippocampus, and I would have to do it bilaterally, by the way, Right? So hippocampus, uh, almost any structure I've talked about is represented on both sides of the brain, both cerebral hemispheres. So if I take the hippocampus out on both sides, James will still remember he's James. James will still remember all sorts of stuff. James just won't learn anything new, um, which could be a little awkward. The, um, the great exception, there are... Ver- there are Actually, we're learning more and more about functions that are lateralized, that aren't represented on both sides of the brain. But the great classic example is language. If you are a right-handed individual, the primary organs, if you like, of of language lie in the left hemisphere. and uh, if you're a left-handed hemis- if you're a left-handed individual, it's about 50-50. Where, you're, where, where language is, is located. Um, I just out of curiosity, how many of you are lefties? Oh, it's pretty scarce. I once upon a time had a notion that left-handedness was overrepresented at MIT, um, but it's not overrepresented here today. Um, the, uh, the poor left... So, so somebody, so some poor left-hander in this class wanted to know about left-handed desks in 10250. Was that you? But you were a woman last time. I remember that. That actually puts you in a much smaller category of of, of people who can switch that back and forth at will. Um, Anyway. Is there there a relationship? No one knows me. 
<laughs> I don't. Uh, the, uh, 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 the late Norm Geshwind had a uh, had a theory that there was a constellation of of things that went together in males, not in females. Uh, I don't. I, uh, homosexuality was not one of them, but but uh, it, it was left-handedness, a certain. Uh, um, certain brands of intellectual talent, autoimmune disease, which wasn't too great, but it was sort of a constellation of things that he thought had a, probably a single or, 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 or a common genetic path in there somewhere. But, but we digress again. Let's see. It's the same people. Uh, you didn't get one in before. Oh, did you? I don't remember. Go ahead. Whatever. Uh, parallel distributed processing, uh, you know, when you go off and do AI and, 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 and or computer, you know, the Core 6 guys will know lots about this eventually if they don't already. Um, but for present purposes, it's the, uh, uh, it's the notion that you can do um, complicated cognitive or you know, mental things with simple little units if you have them put together in a great big distributed uh, um, network. The details of exactly how to put this together are probably not desperately important for present purposes. The bits that are important from your question for present purposes are semantic priming, a good, uh, a good probe for implicit memory, so semantic priming uh, are any of a variety of, of, of ways of showing. If, if I, uh, oh, let's see. Let's do a, um, an example that I didn't do in class just for the fun of it. Um, if I say, what is the first word that comes to mind if you're completing this? Monday, monkey, money. Those were the three I could think of off the top of my head. That's why I needed to put something up that had more than one completion. You know, mononucleosis, right? There's a bunch. Yeah, there's a lot of things, but there's some that are more common than others. Um, an, an example of semantic priming. So I, I could figure out which, uh, um, you know, so, so let, 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 let's suppose that the, that, whoops, that the top winner was Monday and that monkey comes in second. Um, if, I, uh, if, if I went and uh, got you to, uh, if, if I was running down a list of animals, you know, giraffe, lion, gorilla, and then I put up this, you're much more likely to now complete with monkey than with Monday. You're still going to do Monday? What? Who, what, what? Monte what? I'm lost. <laughs> Ooh, what? Something about voles? Did they have? Were they mountain? Oh, oh, oh mono something voles. Well, you read too much about the voles, and in, in, in well, in any case, 
we, we diverge a little from the topic at hand. The, 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 um, the basic point is that we could bias this by semantically priming you. It's an example of semantic. One of the interesting things about how do we know this is implicit? We can do this even if you didn't know anything about the prime. For example, it turns out to be the... Did I tell you about the anesthesia experiments? No, very cool stuff. I put you under anesthesia. Well, I can't do this because the, 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 the human subject subject committee won't let me. But you might need to go under anesthesia. So I, I get a deal with the doctor that I can come in and whisper some words to you. Right? As you, while, you're while you're under anesthesia. So one of the words I whisper is monkey. I wake you up later. Do you remember that I whispered words to you? No, I don't remember any stupid words. All right, what's the first thing that comes to mind if I put up this, these three letters? Monkey, so get out of my face. Um, you actually heard the words while you were anesthetized, stored them, have no explicit memory, but you have an implicit memory of it. It turns, this came as a big surprise to the surgeons. Um, and it causes a change in surgical um, Practice. It's now considered to be bad form to badmouth your anesthetized patient. Man, that is the ugliest kidney I have ever seen. Or, or um, you know, I don't think she's going to make it. And those sort of things. Um, well, if she doesn't make it, it's not. A, it, it doesn't turn out to be a big implicit memory thing. But, um, but it did turn out that people were reporting. Um, you know, I, when I see the surgeon, I feel angry or something. I, I couldn't, uh, things that you didn't quite understand. And, and, and some of it may be this sort of uh, semantic priming effect that the information got in. It's activating chunks of this semantic network. That's what the, the priming piece means. Um, but you have no explicit access to it. You just, you just somehow implicitly know that somebody's been dissing your kidneys. Um, <laughs> There was one more, oh, Stroop effect. The Stroop effect is um, a, a lovely demo. Is there a demo of it in the book? If I, I, should, I should have done it as a demo in class. Um, this is, uh, uh, it's taken as, among other things, evidence for automatic processing. Some things that you do over and over again become so ingrained that it's very hard not to do them. For most of us, reading is one of those things. And so the classic Stroop effect is that I write a bunch of words up and um, I don't have colored chalk, sadly, but, you know, I, I just say, tell me, I don't care what the stupid word is, just tell me what color it is. So, white, okay. So what color is it? Well, P-E... People say white, mostly. They, sometimes they make a mistake. But e even people you know, like you or me, who know about the Stroop effect now, this is the Stroop effect, um, are slowed, substantially slowed, because the reading of green is automatic and it competes with the response. You can't get that white response out because this thing is screaming, it's green! Um, and there's a whole lot of these sort of Stroop effect effects, uh, very big literature on it, which mostly is there to tell you um, that uh, there are processes that happen automatically, that you simply can't... So the, the, one of the more interesting ones is a uh, um, 
oh, what's the official term for it? I'll talk about it later in the term. But it, it, it's, uh, it turns out to be easier to associate young and good, for example, than old and good. So one is just as you have an automatic reading ability, you also have these automatic biases in your um, uh, in, you know, in this giant semantic network that makes it you know that, that, that show up in stroop like effects. Um, so if I well, I'll, I'll talk about that later in the term. It's cool stuff. Yes. Uh, depth cues and how we perceive motion in this, uh, well, the, uh, all right, well, here, let, let, let's, let, let's, let's, let's do this collaboratively. Um, how, let, let, give me some depth cues. Well, no, no, give me some hands that are going to give me some depth cues. Yeah. Stereopsis, oh, start with the fancy stuff. So stereopsis, there's a the difference in the images on the two retinas because the two retinas are looking at a 3D world from different positions. That so-called binocular disparity is a depth cue that you are extremely sensitive to um, if you've got two eyes that work together. If you were, particularly if you were a kid with one eye turned, um, that's a cue that you don't have um, typically. You're so-called stereo blind. Okay, there's one good one. What else we got? Yep. Who? Overlapping. Overlapping or occlusion. Um, yep, if one thing is in front of, if one thing is blocking another thing, it's probably in front of that other thing. Yep. Um, texture. Well, here we'll lump together for present purposes sort of texture and size, all of which get to the same basic idea that we know that things get smaller, their retinal images get smaller as they get further away. Right? And that's used as depth cue. Yep. Oh, you're cheating. You're reading them out of the book. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> it's okay. You can cheat now. If you do it, you do it on Thursday, you get in big trouble. <laughs> the best, the best uh, in, in 25 years of teaching intro was... Uh, we're given, I think it was actually the final, not the midterm. Um, and, and over in Walker with all the cute little desks. And, and, you know, one poor student has her head down on the desk. And it just, you know, looks like she's probably didn't get her flu shot. Because none of us are going to get our flu shots. We're all in. Anyway, um, you know, she's just looking miserable. And so one of the TAs goes over to see if she's okay. And she's not only okay, she's got the textbook open on the floor. She's turning the pages with her foot. <laughs> that wasn't good. But anyway, what do, you, what do you got for us there? Melville there, whatever, you, know, you the green guy. Oh, lin linear perspective. Lines going off, you know, the, to a vanishing, parallel lines going in depth are... Uh, um, converge at a vanishing point. So linear, linear perspective, that's a good one. What else we got? Yep. Um, the color, uh, like things far away sort of... Yeah, haze, aerial perspective. Uh, is, I don't know why it's called aerial perspective, but that's what it's called. Um, 
haze, basically. Things far away, particularly in a humid uh, uh, world, are are bluer and and, and less distinct. Any more? Yeah? No, because if I do it with one eye, it'll work just fine, right? So better not be stereo anything, but it's more or less the same thing. That's motion parallax. Another good one. Motion parallax. But it's the same basic idea, right? So instead of having an eye, two eyes in my head that are in slightly different positions, I have one eye that I move to slightly different positions. And the differences between the image, I can, the relative motion in particular, I can read off as a, as a clue to depth. What else we got? Any other good? Yep. Well, okay. So, so if, if this is this is the great motion cue from uh, that that all kids discover sometime driving down to Interstate Highway, right? Because if you're driving down the Interstate Highway and you, uh, you're fixating on, uh, on, on one cow out in the field there. Oh, I better not look at anybody now because I've called them a cow out in the field. Um, we'll look at a blank chair. Um, you know, that, that chair is in a fixed position on the retina. Um, the things in front of the point of fixation will move relatively in the opposite direction and the things behind the point of fixation will move in the same direction as the viewer. It's just geometry. That's why the moon follows you around, right? When you're driving down the highway. You know, what, what were you guys doing when you were driving down the highway? See, that's, maybe it's only kids who are going to turn out to be vision researchers or something. Anyway, if you stand, if you, try it next time you're driving down the highway. Look, look, look out the window. Look at the trees. The, one you're fi- the distance that you're fixating on is relatively stationary. Everything in front moves against you. Everything behind moves with you. That's a depth cue. It tells you, you, you know about that regularity and you use it to give you a clue to depth. Um, convergence and divergence of the eyes, basically a triangulation cue. Um, is, is a weak cue to depth accommodation, how, you, how you're focusing the eyes is a weak cue to depth in, in, in humans. Uh, anybody think of any other ones that we've forgotten there of the... Yeah? Light or shadow? Oh, shadows. Shadows, shadows are, are good clues to, uh, um, to depth. I showed those nice moony face figures that um, had... Uh, um, only shadow information and you can recover all sorts of information about, uh, about a face from that. What were the monocular that Monocular ones are the ones that work with one eye. Right, right. So, so stereopsis is the only one here that is a binocular depth cue. All the other ones will work just fine with, uh, with one eye. And pe- people tend to think that somehow depth vision... Is, is vitally linked to having two eyes. Having two eyes is a good thing, but, you know, the world doesn't go particularly flat if you just look with one eye. So what's, what's two, what are two eyes good for? I mean, it's clearly not worth it to... Uh, in, in evolutionary terms, it's very hard to imagine that it was worth it for stereopsis. It's a lovely side benefit, but, but what else do you get from having two eyes? Yeah? 
Replacement parts. Good, very handy. Probably an explanation for lots of bilateral stuff. You know, why two kidneys? You know, it's just, you know, having two things is, is, is a good thing. What else? What else do you get out of two eyes that you don't have from one? Yeah. Yeah, expanded field of vision. So, you know, with, with, what, with one eye, if I'm looking at you, my visual field stops here. With the two eyes, it goes out to a little more than 180 degrees. If I was a rabbit, my visual field would go all the way around my head, it turns out. They've got full 360 um, with, with eyes on the side. You know, they, they, they have lateral eyes. They can also see straight up, apparently, um, with ears. Stick it. Now, they don't see with their ears. They got the ears up, up there. Um, so who's... But you don't. Why do you have frontal eyes? Why, why not put your... Give, you know, what, what, what are you... What are you... Uh, so what, what, what are you getting that the rabbit doesn't have by having frontal eyes? Yeah? I don't know. I was watching this cover channel. said that the more factor eyes out, like, higher the higher the the lower the foot, yeah. The, 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 the distinction is, uh, it's not perfect, but um, it's prey animals who have the eyes on the side of their heads and predators who have eyes in the front of their heads. Um, and uh, the, the logic for prey is clear enough. I mean, the problem with being prey is that somebody wants to prey on you um, and they like do unfair things like sneak up behind you. Um, so if you can see behind you, you have a certain advantage um, going for you. Um, if you've got two detectors looking at the same thing, particularly, for instance, in dim light, you can do better than if you have only one. So pro- uh, predators have uh, two forward-looking eyes to bring two detectors, basically, to bear on, on the same thing. And you get stereo out of the deal and you know all sorts of handy stuff like that. But um, But you are... You should, you should be happy to know that you're high on the food chain, at least by the placement of your, your eyes. Now, I don't think you can go further with this and say that the, the people with little narrowly placed eyes are way high up on the food chain. Um, that, I, don't, I don't think that works. Uh, uh, the, 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 the question once upon a time also said something about motion, right? Where, where, who, who asked that question? What was the motion part of it? You asked about motion parallax, but, but the original question here was depth perception and motion. Oh, how does motion work? There are stuff moves. And, no, the important thing about... The, the, well, there are a couple of important things to remember about motion. Um, and I can't remember which of them are actually discussed extensively in the book. Uh, well, I remember one bit that's discussed in the book. One thing is that it's another case where you have to worry about ambiguities, right? If you've got... Oh, yes, this is discussed in the book. I just remembered. Ooh, I just remembered all sorts of things, um, which I shouldn't remember. Um, anyway, if you've got a, a, a line and it's moving, so you're, you're, you're looking at this line, so you've got a little... little, little here, imagine this is the receptive field of a cell. It's behaving like a little aperture, basically. And, and this thing is moving. Well, maybe it's moving like that. Or maybe it's moving like this. Or maybe it's moving like this. If all you can see is this little bit of it, you can't tell um, which direction it's moving. I mean, you can narrow it down to within 180 degrees. 
It's not going that way. But you can't tell if, if this is a contour sliding up like that, sliding down like that, moving across like that. You see the problem? It's known as the aperture problem. The example that is in the book is the so-called barber pole illusion, where you've got... Um, suppose you've got a situation... Like that. Oops, I need to make these exactly the same. Here, let's see if we can manage to make them exactly the same. Yeah, okay, they're all more or less the same orientation. Okay. Oh, it's going to be a messy picture. Oh, well. Anyway, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have all these guys moving perpendicular to... The, uh, to their orientation. But what will happen, let's redraw this guy up here, is that this thing, if these guys are all actually moving like that behind a, a horizontal aperture, it'll look like it's moving along the aperture that way, and these guys will look like they're moving down. And the reason is that you're using the little endpoints to disambiguate. How do we know how this thing is moving? Well, that, if, if, if this thing is sliding, well, however it's sliding along, these little endpoints are going to all be moving like this. And so I'm going to guess that the overall motion is along. And these little endpoints are all going to be moving down. So I'm going to guess that it's moving down. The important point here, the general point, so if, if, if this doesn't make sense, go back and look at the example, the barber pole illusion example that I remember looking at in the book. The important point is that you're making an inference about motion because little local bits of motion are inherently ambiguous. You have to disambiguate it. Um, the other thing uh, to remember about motion is that nothing actually needs to move. The nothing needs to move part is the reason you can see movies. And car car cartoons are the clearest example of this. But movies in general, you know are a series of discrete frames. And if I show you this, 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 your, um, uh, that's called apparent motion, what you will see is a nice smooth motion as you basically interpolate the motion in between. In fact, if I flash um, a, a uh, light here and a light here, you will see that light. You will swear up and down, if I get the timing right, that you see the light here move through space to here, even though there's no, you know, there's never any light at this point. You'll still see, you, you will see your, your inference in that case. I just heard a nice talk on Friday by a woman whose, uh, whose fame is based in part on discovering that... Um, that if you start making these sort of pictures with human bodies, that the system knows how human bodies work. And so, let's see, can I make a motion that works? If I go from here... Oh, what's a good motion that doesn't work? If I, if I, if I do this to so something like that, the shortest path from here to here would be some weird path through my upper arm... 
but the, the more reasonable thing would be a swooping thing like that, and you'll actually see the one that, that makes bi- uh, biomechanical sense, is what she discovered, that, that, that uh, you, you know how bodies move. If you do it with something where you don't know it, it'll go for the shortest path, but if you use a human body where you know a lot about it, it will go for the, uh, the shortest path. Um, how are we doing here? I see another hand. Yes, that would be yours. Hmm? Overshadowing. So o- overshadowing is, is a conditioning uh, um, paradigm where, so if I, if I ring a little bell and I feed you, ring a bell, feed you, ring a bell, feed you, um, you'll, you'll, you'll salivate when I ring the bell, right? That's just the Pavlov's dog thing. If I show, if I have a compound event, bright light, little bell, Food, bright light, little bell, food. Even though that's the same little bell that we had before. Now you'll only learn the association between the light and the food because the light has overshadowed the bell. You're noticing the most salient uh, relationship. You don't necessarily notice the important one. Now, an an interesting example of this, it suddenly occurs to me, is we we talked about taste aversions, right? You... um, where if you eat something and then throw up, you won't eat that thing again. But the definition of what that thing is, is subject to, uh, to great overshadowing effects. And the great example is alcohol. The sensory effects of alcohol are minimal. It doesn't taste like much. So if you have um, you know, vodka mixed with orange juice, drink enough of it to get sick, what you will develop an aversion to is the orange juice because it's the salient sensory stimulus um, and the alcohol will be overshadowed. So that's a nice practical example of, uh, um, of overshadowing. So who's, who's sitting here monitoring the game on their, on, on their something? What's the score? Oh, okay. Oh, well. Well, oh, that's not good either, right? 4-3, Yankees, bottom of the eighth. So, um, yes? Oh, now blocking is, I know the answer, and how am I going to not manage to... Um, confuse the issue. If, if I go bell tone, bell tone, bell tone, bell tone, I es- es- establish a connection between bell and tone, and now I introduce a light, light and bell tone, light and bell tone, you don't learn the light association. It's been blocked by the pre-existing connection to the tone. So the, 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 the critical difference is the way it's built up, that, that in, in the case of overshadowing, um, these two things show up sort of at the same time for the first time, and the salient one overshadows the second one. In the blocking case, what you already know keeps you from learning something new. Yes? That, that work? Well, okay. How can memories be what? 
oh, distorted all sorts of ways, many of which you might discover on, fi- on, on the midterm, right? So, um, memories get, uh, get distorted by things like um, the, uh, uh, your pre-existing biases, if you, if you think you know something. So, so remember that part of the way that things get into memory is by making association with stuff that's already in there. That's the idea that you don't need to rehearse material um, for instance, if you've got some way of chunking it automatically and getting it in there based on what you already know. So if you already know something that's, that, that's biased or bogus or something like that, that can distort a memory. I can distort memory after the fact by um, giving you new information that, that uh, interferes with it in some fashion. So that's the example from the Elizabeth Loftus experiments of you see a car run on a yield sign, you're told later that it was a stop sign, and you subsequently come to think it was a stop sign. Even if that information is marked as false in some fashion. Um, You can, uh, how you're asked about it, that's another Loftus example, how you're asked about a memory can distort the memory. If I asked you, did the car smash into the truck? You'll have that car moving faster than if I say, did that car bump into the truck? Um, I know I should be able to generate a whole bunch of other great examples here. Uh, well, I mean, there, there, there are ways to distort it by, uh, you know, knocking you on the head and things like that. I suppose I could come up with a collection of physiological techniques for distorting memory. Um, what am I forgetting? Yes, my st- I'm forgetting that I dropped the stick. No. No, you didn't say anything. You just waved your. I thought you were you were you were bidding on that one. Who can think of any other great memory distortion? Oh, oh, there are other distortions of memory. I don't know if it's less active, but people forget the source of of uh, the, the, the source of memory comes disentangled from the actual memory. So the, the, the one example of that is so-called cryptamnesia, where you think an idea was yours and it was really somebody else's. Um, yeah? Oh, yes, yes. So affective, your affective state will influence. It's, it's, that's a, sort of a special case of the bias example. But if you're in a bad mood, what you recover tends to be different than if you were in a... Uh, a good mood. Um, I can. This is this is a beautiful example of the of the phenomenon that that will undoubtedly afflict some of you at some point during the exam. I can see my handout where it ha- listed about five you know, ways that memories can be you know, five problems with retrieval or something like that, and I can't quite read them off the uh, uh, off of that. Um, that image. So I, I've, I've got this feeling I'm forgetting a couple of them in there. Was, wasn't there one with like a trusted parent who say like, remember when you were little? Oh yeah, so you can have completely false memories that are generated by um, uh, by uh, in, in, in the example that, that you're, you're giving is in a, yet another clever Liz Loftus experiment where what you're doing is somebody, your brother says to you, do you remember being lost in the, in the shopping mall? You recover a memory that you think feels like a real memory, but it's not a real memory. 
It's a memory based on your schema, a good term from one of the chapters in there, your schema of what being lost in a mall would be like. Um, This is how uh, most cognitive science sorts understand um, alien possession narratives. Right? There are some people who firmly believe that there are guys coming down from outer space and taking people up into their spaceship and probing them with interesting instruments and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe there are. Um, but um, more the, the mainstream cognitive science thought on this would be that this is an example of a false memory. And the reason there's a degree of consistency there is that people know the story. They know... You know, from, I don't know how much supermarket tabloid viewing you do, but, you know, every, every so often there's a picture of an alien coming down to talk to, uh, to, uh, to the current president. I remember a particularly nice picture of an alien talking to Bill Clinton. Um, and they always look the same. They got the sort of smooth, oblong kind of head with the big eyes and stuff like that. Um, and people know, you know, flying saucers... Smooth kind of aliens. They poke you with stuff and probably do weird sexual kinds of things for whatever their weird alien purposes are. Um, and, and, they, and people firmly come to believe that they have had that experience. Um, if it ever turns out that aliens do look like that, we may have to revise the cognitive science take on this. But in the meantime, it's, it's a sort of a common shared story to all appearances. Well, all right, that's a bunch of good ways that, that you can distort memory, and there's that great handout there somewhere to give you the rest of them if we forgot one of them. Think it's time to go home? Is the game over? Nope. Uh, drive reduction theory is, is, is a, a, a general uh, class of motivation theories that say you've got a, a, a set of drives, some of them basic, is sort of innate basic drives, like um, you know, hunger. Hunger is unpleasant. Why do you do, uh, you know, why do you do food kind of things? You do it to reduce your hunger drive. It feels bad. Uh, sexual deprivation feels unpleasant. You know, why do you engage in mating behavior? Well, because you want to get rid of that. that so you want to reduce that drive. The um, the counter example to it is perhaps more interesting than... Now, drive reduction theory gets you a certain distance, but um, the things that it doesn't explain is why you would go and eat something when you weren't hungry, or why you might go out hunting for food if you're, you know, a leopard or whatever before you get hungry. And there you get the notion of um, appetitive behaviors, behaviors that are um, rewarding even though they are not reducing a drive. In the case of appetitive uh, hunting behavior, it, the, the logic is that you want to get the leopard out there hunting before he's really hungry, because otherwise he's going to run out of gas before he gets to catch the gazelle or something. He's got to be out there while he's still got enough food reserves that, that he can go and... Uh, it's, a, it's a way of organizing more complicated behaviors. So drive reduction is a good place to start. And then if you're really going to start explaining why complex organisms do things, you sort of have to go beyond, go beyond that. To Yankee reduction theory. Anything? Yeah? Anything happening here? We don't know. 
No, no, no. It's still 4-3, bottom of the eighth. Okay. All right. Well, everybody can make a run for it and catch the, uh, catch the bottom of the night. If you suddenly remember more questions, you can send email, post them to the website. Good luck. We'll see you. Uh, I won't see you, but I'll hear all about it.